Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Welcome, Jim. Welcome, Brad. This is uh, the Ocean Protect podcast too. Brad, we've got the godfather of stormwater, well, certainly in my eyes, Jim Lenhart. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Good to be here. Thanks for coming along, Jim. Much appreciate it. So uh, we've made it to uh, our second podcast, which is uh, a pretty uh, pretty big deal. <laughs> we've asked Jim Lenhart to come along. Jim's based in Portland, Oregon in the U.S., We've uh, done a lot of work with Jim and he's mentored um, myself over the last, uh, gee, how long have we been mates for? Too I long. think well over 10 years. Well now. over 10 years, showing my age. But um, look, I'll throw it over to Jim and let you introduce yourself. Just tell us where you're from uh, and uh, what you've been up to. Well, I'm from Portland, Oregon in the United States. I've been involved in the stormwater business and industry for many years. I developed a technology, the storm filter, which is currently used by Ocean Protect, and um, have uh, been involved uh, at a regulatory level, both in the United States and here in Australia for many years as well. So I've helped develop a lot of protocols and test methods uh, associated with uh, verification of different technologies throughout uh, the United States and, and the world for that matter. I've also been very much involved uh, at the academic level, um, helping uh, with research and involved with the Environmental uh, Water Resources Institute as chair of the Urban Water Resources Research Council, which does a lot of work on low-impact development and different aspects of uh, managing stormwater in the urban environment. Well, how long has stormwater actually been on the public radar or the environmental radar in America? Like, we've been looking at it for maybe 10 or 15 years, maybe, in Australia, but what about in America? Actually, not a whole lot longer. Oh, okay. Um, it, it really, you know, in the 70s, the US EPA identified... Uh, wastewater, direct discharge of uh, untreated wastewater into our receiving waters, uh, rivers, and streams, and started passing a lot of regulations to deal with uh, wastewater treatment. In the uh, late 80s, or actually in the early 80s, uh, as we were cleaning up this uh, wastewater, they started noticing that uh, pollution was still occurring, and uh, studies were done what they called the National Urban Runoff Program, which was sponsored by the EPA. And uh, during that process, a lot of samples were taken, and it was recognized that uh, stormwater runoff, or polluted stormwater runoff, was now the major and leading uh, contributor to the degradation of our receiving waters in the United States. Is that pretty common for all waterways in America? So 
Very common for a lot of the waterways, particularly in coastal areas and and larger cities. Yeah, where there's a lot of people, a lot of urbanized areas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So uh, the EPA developed what they call the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System and issued permits to uh, large municipalities, which at the time were over 100,000 people, and required them first to characterize uh, the issue that they had with stormwater pollution. So a lot of studies were done collecting samples, understanding what the nature of the pollutants was, and um, kind of in parallel, uh, technology started to emerge, uh, principally started with uh, ponds, installing ponds, and then uh, big sand filters, and other more traditional uh, treatment technology. And and so what was the driver? So you talk about degradation. Is it trying to protect the ecology of these waterways or from a human health perspective? Yes, yes and yes. Okay. a number of different impacts. Uh, for, first of all, the, the first thing they noticed was that urbanization increases the uh, magnitude of the flow rate. So you started yep. having degradation of streams through accelerated erosion. So a lot of uh, municipalities or local governments, as they call it here, started to require regulations to store that water and release it slowly to prevent the streams from being degraded. In terms of water quality, issues of low dissolved oxygen, Phosphorus and, and nitrogen, mostly in the United States, it's phosphorus because you get uh, algal blooms that are happening in a lot of our lakes and streams. So, so give me the lowdown from, from the layman's perspective. Why is phosphorus a problem? You talked about algal blooms. Explain, explain that link to me. In a lot of water bodies, uh, uh, algae requires a certain balance of nutrients in order for it to thrive. And uh, phosphorus is usually what's called the limiting nutrient. They're just very low phosphorus levels, and that does not allow the algae to grow. In an urbanized environment, when you have phosphorus coming in from detergents, you have it coming in from fertilizers and all sorts of things, the phosphorus is no longer a limiting nutrient. So what happens is the algae just starts growing like crazy. Algae uh, photosynthesizes, and uh, during period of the day, it produces oxygen, but um, it also respires. So it uses oxygen, and so you get these crazy swings and in uh, oxygen and um, low oxygen levels in the lakes can kill the fish and destroy that whole uh, ecosystem. And obviously when the algae die. And the algae dies, it, it falls to the bottom and then you get, it, it begins to decay down there and can develop uh, toxic effects. And is that what was being noticed in the 70s with increased urbanization? They were seeing yeah. increased rates of algal blooms and... Right. Yeah. Particularly in, in areas of the United States. So in, in coastal areas, the Carolinas in the Pacific Northwest, where I come from, um, there's a lot of lakes and streams uh, up in the Great Lakes yeah, areas. The Great Lakes, yeah, of course. Yeah. It, it becomes very, very evident, um, particularly uh, areas where there's a lot of urbanization and runoff. So they recognized the problem. There was a, a too much phosphorus going into the waterways, decreasing dissolved oxygen levels, causing fish to die. And then what was the response to say, geez, we've got to do something. Let's have some legislation and... Well, legislation started being passed. Some of the first actions that were taken and reasonably successful were the introduction of non-phosphate detergents. Right. Okay. Wow, uh, didn't know that. No. Yeah, yeah. The phosphorus is a great, makes a great detergent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, phosphorus-based trisodium phosphate on these these chemicals. So a lot of the newer detergents don't contain phosphorus. Is that the was that the case for us in Aussie? I don't think so. I think there's some e- eco-friendly sort of detergents that you can buy, but it's certainly not compulsory. I yeah. think it's well. Quite, let's let's, yeah. let's look at that. Yeah. yeah. So when you say detergents, what what are, what are detergents being used for? Is it for washing cars and Lash, uh, yeah, washing cars, uh, laundry detergents, uh, just basically cleaning solutions. Yeah. 
But when we're washing the cars, that goes down the stormwater drains. But when you're using detergent in your laundry, laundry, you're talking about the wastewater system as well. Well, yeah, to a certain extent. But a lot of times if you have, uh, you know, you assume everything goes to the wastewater treatment plant, but it doesn't. So you have. Uh, wow. Uh, so literally sewage yeah, is yeah, going into the water. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Leach okay, fields, okay. the groundwater. Yeah. yeah okay. um, we also have in the United States and a lot of major cities uh, combined sewer overflows. Yeah. 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 Wow. So that are CSOs as yeah. we call them. And we, we are still in the process of trying to reduce the frequency of these mm-hmm. overflows, which happen when. The, the oh, mate, it, that happens yeah, everywhere. Yeah, it happens right. here in Sydney Harbour, in Auckland, UK, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a massive problem. So a lot of areas in the United States, the, the phosphorus uh, went under regulation. It was also noted that total suspended solids uh, was recognized by EPA as one of the major pollutants. And it is just particulate matter. So it's soil, uh, small bits of vegetation, and, uh, and other little particulates that are transported in stormwater. Yeah, because, you know, when, when I always talk about sediment, people sort of laugh and go, well, what is sediment? I'm like, well, it's, it's basically dirt, you know, and and people don't see why that's, you know, and it has a negative impact on the environment. So I guess for anyone that's listening, do you want to explain why and, and, and how sediment is a problem when it, when it gets into our receiving environment? Well, there's a number of different reasons. There's mechanical reasons. So as the sediment, let's say, comes into the beds of gravel streams, where particularly where I come from, the, the uh, salmon uh, use these gravel streams for spawning. So basically what happens is the, these gravel beds get smothered out and can smother the eggs. They basically can't breathe. They don't get uh, fresh oxygenated water that's flowing over the eggs and they die. So you start seeing a decline in the uh, salmon populations. Okay. Um, then you also just, you, you know, clog up streams and yeah. um, different things. So the mechanical but the suspended solids also um, are a surrogate pollutant, and they transport other pollutants with them. So attached to or uh, uh, as part of the uh, suspended solids is phosphorus, nitrogen, uh, heavy metals. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, again, where I come from, heavy metals is a big problem. A lot of evidence showing that very low concentrations of copper, for example, can uh, impact the the navigation systems that are built into these fish as they swim upstream. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I remember, I remember uh, watching something like that. They're, yeah, they're basically they're, their internal compass goes all pear-shaped. Their internal right. compass goes out because of heavy metal contamination in the yeah. waterways. Yeah, there's sensors wow. along the side of their body <laughs> that's that yours with. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then also, the for some reason, the fish get dumb, and they kind of um, they don't know how to hide anymore. The, the ones that have been exposed to these pollutants, rather than uh, like hiding under a rock, if, if they see movement, they just don't seem to do it. So, so it's so much that, more easy to predate. On you think life. maybe the contamination is actually impairing the intelligence or That's brain function what of their. A lot of the research is showing. Whoa, <laughs> holy moly. Yeah. It, yeah it, well, and it's not too much for a stretch to think if. Fish are struggling in terms of intellectual capacity and, and brain function right. because of water contamination. Right. We're swimming in those waterways. We're drinking that water. Uh, we're eating crops irrigated with those that water. Yeah, it's not a too much of a stretch to think maybe that contaminated water might be actually impairing our brain function as a human species. Well, I don't, I don't want to be too too, too alarmist <laughs> yeah. doomsday, but yeah, it's hard to say. But I'll tell you, there's uh, a lot of what they call emerging contaminants. So as we're learning more and more about what's in in the stormwater runoff. 
there's uh, endocrine disruptors, which uh, come from uh, pharmaceuticals. They, they come from uh, personal care products, a lot of times in, in uh, um, sprays and makeup. All this stuff eventually finds its way into the water. And a lot of it, the wastewater treatment plants, after the water is treated, discharge to surface waters. Mm, of course. And we're finding that a lot of these newer, more sophisticated contaminants go right through the treatment plant because and of, not being yeah, removed. Because a typical treatment system might have some coarse, screen, coarse screening, some biological nitrogen removal, some oxidation ditch, but right. they, don't, they can't strip the water so clean that it will remove these endocrine disruptors and sort of other right. very small pollutants. Very, very much so. And I suppose if they're not aware, then they're not building the wastewater treatment plant to cope with it. So yeah. it's, it, as we learn more, yeah. then then hopefully we're getting better wastewater treatment plants. But how would you remove it? You'd really need some sort of reverse osmosis system really to remove uh, yeah. chemicals that Yeah, it's small. it's getting tougher and tougher because a, a lot of the pharmaceuticals and personal care products are designed to be resistant to degradation. And uh, so Which they're, makes sense. they're yeah. embedded in uh, art- artificial carbon rings, uh, carbon tubes, they're, they're yeah. impregnated and they're extremely, uh, resistant to environmental. And, and sorry, just to confirm, are, are they finding levels of these contaminants at detectable levels in waterways? Yes. It, yes. Is that and, the case? And, and in a lot America of people are contributing and, this to, uh, a lot of the amphibians. Um, a lot of the research is, is creating a link between the deformation that we find in amphibians and surface waters. To a lot of these more sophisticated emerging contaminants. Your idea. And another one that that has emerged and, and they're trying to control is uh, phthalates. Yeah. They're, they're a pretty sophisticated organic compound that has toxicity characteristics. There's phthalates in, in, that come from roadways a lot of times, and uh, different coatings that you put on the road uh, have high levels of phthalates in mm. it. Uh, when you say coatings, what like asphalt? Or you're talking about yeah, or physical like, road. Uh, um, uh, what they call it escapes me right now. What the name is? It's a it's a seal coat. Okay. So it, you know when the road wears out, they, mm. they'll do like a chip and seal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the, the oil that they spray on there that that kind of hardens and and heases everything together releases these phthalates. Wow. And a lot of places in the United States they've mm. been outlawed. So just a complete ban on the use of various chemicals. Uh, and yeah, a lot of them. Uh, in your experience, and you probably know this more, Beeman, though you don't spend a huge amount of your time in Australia, but do we have these similar bans within Australia about banning particular? Well, I, I don't know. I um, it, well, we, oh, we need to find this. I've out. never. I've, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's 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 uh, and and one of the reasons that I actually. Love to come down here, yeah. aside from the fact that it's just a wonderful place, yeah. is um, you, you find that there's a different ways that people are approaching things and, and thinking about things. And I, I've always find it unique that a lot of the the actions that are being taken in Australia that are very, people are very proactive about uh, things. For for example, um, I think simply because we live by the, by the yeah, ocean. Like Ocean Protect, you know, is really starting to say, hey, the stormwater is a major contributor to the uh, ocean pollutants. I think Australia has been far more conscientious about ocean pollutants simply because of the beaches here and and the way that, that people interface yeah, with the natural I, environment. I think we're good in understanding when we see pollution, we know it's wrong and we want to do something about it. The, the big disconnect that I see, at least in Australia, and be keen to see what it's like in, in America is we don't link uh, pollution in our oceans 
to where it's actually coming from. I think people just think litter is discarded in on the beach or dumped out at sea. I think very few people actually make the connection. Yeah, I, I had a um, I was in Cincinnati, sort of talking to a few people about ocean protect and what we're trying to achieve, and you know they made a very good point. Um, people in Cincinnati probably have never been, or a majority have never been to the ocean and would not have a clue what happens there stormwater. So, you know, I, I, just going back to it, we are, as as Australians, we're always so close to the beach. So I think we automatically have more awareness around it. But, yet, yeah, just a, I was astonished, you know. Majority of the people in Cincinnati, or well, a high proportion, have never been to the ocean. Yeah, wow. But if you go in the state of California, uh, they've passed what, what we call TMDLs, Total Maximum Daily Loads, and this, these are environmental regulations with big teeth. Yeah. And, uh, so, and they must be followed. So, so Cali- what is a total maximum daily load? Does it's, that mean you, you can't? On a discharge? daily basis, you're allowed to discharge only a certain load of a pollutant to waterways. Wow. Is that for wastewater only or storm? No, that's for stormwater. And you don't just, know this, Brad. This is, to, um, to pretty give cool. You, so hang on, but how do they enforce that or, or police that or? Well, one thing we're really good at in the United States is through a legal system. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, um, you know, one of the beauties of the, of the Clean Water Act is, is this ability for third party lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's a beauty and a beast. So, yeah. uh, you know, environmental groups have the ability to go and file suit against companies or even against uh, the EPA itself. An environmental not, company will sue the EPA. Yeah, like third-party uh, um, wow. non-profit organizations. And there, there's quite a few of them in the United States, particularly in areas where the environment has been impacted. So California is in the process of promulgating TMDLs for trash and debris. Well, hasn't California just launched something, uh, an initiative by 2025, of they've got a zero tolerance to litter going into the receiving yeah, environment? and that's where it comes, that... that do you know that? You no. have to have yeah. a total maximum daily load for particulate matter and, and trash debris that's greater than five millimeters in diameter, which is slightly smaller than a cigarette, but I might yeah, add yeah, yeah. Um, 100%. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So just to clarify, nothing more or less similar size to a cigarette bud, about five millimeters. Yeah. Nothing bigger than that is allowed to discharge into any waterway in California. That's correct. How the hell are they going to achieve that? Well, first of all, spending a lot of money. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars of investment. Where's that money coming from? Federal? Well, some of it comes from federal. Some of it comes uh, through 
uh, what some people might call a rain tax. Uh, that's what, uh, but basically it's through setting up utilities, stormwater utilities that uh, rate payers uh, pay, pay into that, just like you pay for water, just yeah. like you pay for wastewater treatment. And uh, that money is, is used to start doing that. Wow. Private. It's uh, a private. huge task though, like uh, obviously a lot of money, but like physically, are they talking about putting essentially every area, every square inch of impervious you know, car park, roof area, every area, every unit of area gets some sort of stormwater treatment? They've been in the process of doing that. Yeah. And, and basically retrofitting. Existing, yeah, infrastructure. through retrofitting, they either at the the uh, catch basin or gully pit. Yeah, is that what you call them? Gully, gully pit. Yeah, yeah. So either that. That's kind of the I would say that the simplest thing to do in a retrofit. But uh, our transportation networks, municipalities on large drainage networks are putting in very large screening systems uh, to intercept the flow and then uh, basically remove. Particulate matter. That is amazing. Yeah. So, like, as an example, and me and Jeremy have speculated this for a while, we think probably less than 1% of our urban areas in Australia have any form of stormwater treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Was it like that, like, for example, California, where they. Yeah, what do you reckon, California? Uh, California has been pretty proactive about it for uh, maybe 10, 15 years. They yeah, had- but California is a massive place. I mean, like. Surely the, the new development and, and where you've put in treatment devices, that's, that's been on the rise. But you're telling me over the last 10 to 15 years, they're actually going back and retrofitting all this infrastructure. Yes. That's yes. awesome. So yeah. and the other interesting thing is the, the TMDLs on the trash and debris is just the beginning. By the year 2040, they have to start looking at nutrients, total suspended solids, temperature, bacteria, metals, um, and emerging pollutants. So that and covers stormwater they're just, and wastewater. They're just ratcheting water. it down more and more. Wow. Um, and, and so just backtracking a little bit, why why is this why is this a driver in California? Well, California is obviously a very green state. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. one thing to say you're green, though. And I, I hear I talk to a lot of councils across various parts of Australia. Everyone says they're green, but yeah. very few people actually are. Yeah. So well, how is California different? They've gone from calling well, themselves there, green there to actually. There are a lot of environmental groups. That, you know, yeah. it's, it's a very liberal state in the United States, and a lot of times it's on the leading edge. It was one on the leading edge of uh, uh, car emissions. Um, yeah. You know, back when we started saying, "Hey, maybe we ought to start cleaning up the air." If, if you would have been in Los Angeles, you'd be there a day, and your throat would start yeah. hurting. There's another example of TMDLs, and we talked about phosphorus earlier. The Chesapeake Bay um, is under a, a consent decree to get. The phosphorus out of the water and um that the chesapeake bay is a huge water body and i think there's like 12 states or whatever that at some point in time discharge of the states so they're setting these tmdls uh in virginia and, and new york and pennsylvania and in all these states that run off to it and they're talking in an expense by 2025 on the order of 35 billion dollars in order to Start getting involved in the retrofit wow. system. So, a massive amounts of money are being spent to start cleaning up the now, water. Yeah, cool. Rightio. So, so it's, they're spending a massive amount of money. And I think, Brad, you touched on it before. You know, what is the driver? You know, ha- have they started seeing, you know, massive fish die off? Uh, the, you know, are the, are the beaches, you know, are they all buggered? Because for me, so us sitting here, 
someone must have stood up or a big lobby group's gone, hey, this is not happening. You know, what What was the catalyst behind all this? Because it just seems like an extraordinary m- massive effort and, and it's, you know, yeah, and yeah. we haven't heard about it. I have never heard of anything as elaborate and such over like such a massive achievement to achieve zero pollutant loads of, of say gross pollutants what we would call gross pollutants right. zero amounts of litter going into a waterway if, if me and jeremy achieve that in a suburb of australia oh mate. we'd be high-fiving ourselves yeah <laughs> more than we already do <laughs> yeah. but to achieve that for a, the state of california which is a humongous state it's bigger than most um developed right. countries uh, mm-hmm. economies but getting back to jeremy's question what is the what is the key catalyst what's the big motivator for change well first of all it's it, it's regulations right and but in order to get but, regulation but stemming down from these regulations are our studies, uh, you know, that the waters of the United States are basically for transportation, for beneficial use, uh, for recreational use. A lot of different uses are identified. And that's kind of what is, is the foundation of which a lot of these things are built. Yeah. Um, if you go to the state of Florida right now, the state of Florida is in a total crisis on, on their, their lake systems because of phosphorus. And, and you're literally just getting massive die off of, of fish. The water is essentially toxic. You, you don't swim in it. And they're starting to see these, these blooms or algae, toxic algae blooms happen in the Great Lakes. We're seeing it in the Puget Sound. We're seeing it in the Gulf of Mexico. Not so much in the Gulf of Mexico, even though there's a the mm. toxic dead zone there. Yeah. And, and Florida right now is uh, just trying to figure out how to solve this problem. Wow. Um, and for Florida is a key key contributor stormwater runoff from urban areas or? Well, a lot of it comes from urban areas. Uh, Florida is a very large agricultural state. Yeah. And then also uh, um, all throughout Florida are uh, the, the the way that wastewater is managed is usually through leach fields. And, and uh, so you, through groundwater transport, you, you've had a lot of that going on. The phosphorus comes from a lot of different sources. Yeah. And they've been very focused on phosphorus, but um, – in putting in best management practices to uh, try to reduce that through treatment systems, but it's not enough. And it's just starting to take its toll. Wow. And the state is in a, literally in in a crisis. You go Google uh, phosphorus, Florida crisis, and you're going to get all sorts of hits on the internet. And and if you think about it, um, you know, Australia is a very new country. So, you know, you've you've got a lot more history of buildup of contaminants just through time. You know, yeah. is, is this where we're heading down here? I mean, oh, 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 I think we are, but you know, it just blows my mind that you know your leaps. You say that you like coming down here and seeing what we're doing differently. Wow, mate, we, we we can't even maintain our own infrastructure that's in the ground, let alone set yeah. set standards like well, you are. So, I, I guess one question, you know, just a segue. You know that we we don't really maintain any of our assets down here in in Australia. Stormwater treatment assets. Stormwater treatment assets. What's it like up in the in the US as far as maintenance <laughs> is concerned? Well, that that's a good subject as well. Actually, as a, as chair of the Urban Water Resources Research Council, uh, two years ago, I started bringing this up as a big issue. Uh, we've been very focused the last you know put in these practices, but there's a not a whole lot of accountability in terms of. First of all, they're working from the day one. Uh, second of all, uh, after they're in the ground, uh, who's maintaining these systems? 
Yeah, and I, I guess for for people that are listening, hopefully thousands, when we, <laughs> when we talk about maintaining a stormwater uh, quality asset or a stormwater asset, so this is infrastructure that's put in the ground underneath the car park where the water drains into, and depending on what it's it's it's, it's aim to do, basically it'll fill up full of gross pollutants, so cigarette butts, bottles, plastic bags, you name it. So what we're saying is it's mandatory that in Australia these types of devices go in on new developments, but no one's actually physically going out and cleaning them. And, oh, look, look, some people are. Brad, what do you reckon, 2%? Oh, yeah, Yeah. less than. I think in many cases they're put in forgotten about um, and they never receive any re- removal of the accumulated material. Yeah. So look for, for people like myself, I like to dumb it down. I'd say 90% uh, of assets don't get 90%. Of, so you've got thousands of these underground rubbish bins effectively full of rubbish and they're just not getting taken out. And when it rains again, a lot of it gets resuspended and put down the pipe network. So basically there's no point in putting them in. So I just want to clarify that's when we say maintenance is actually cleaning these underground systems out and then getting them back up to a level where they start working again. So, Well, that's very true, but it's not just the underground systems, mm. the above-ground system yeah. as well. Uh, there, there's this kind of a, a legacy that an underground system is out of sight, out of mind, but the reality is that most systems above-ground or below-ground yeah. are not being managed. And so we actually put on this national conference two years ago on operations and maintenance of green and gray infrastructure. It was very successful. We have another conference that we're putting on uh, this August of 2019. It's in uh, Minneapolis. I've always wanted you to go to Mini- Minneapolis. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't you know. So, so um, it's been talked about, but the reality is, are, are assets in America being maintained or is there a... starting it, because really? uh, it's part of, of the uh, measures that are required in permits. And, and okay. You yeah. install these things and guess what? you got to maintain them too. Um, you have to educate the public. You have to work on source controls. There's a lot of different things that you're required to do in your permit. And, and you bang on. I mean, the city of Gold Coast, when you put a device in or when a developer goes in for, for their DA, the city of Gold Coast here in Australia actually makes the developer enter into a long-term maintenance contract before he's allowed to start building yes. his development. Right. So, yeah, when you force someone to do it, they, of course they're going to have to do it. So, but, do, but do, 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 do the local jurisdictions enforce these requirements? It's one thing to have a requirement, yeah, it's yeah, to actually police it or do something about it. Right. And, and frankly, some of the people that have the biggest issue with doing it is the, the local municipalities maintaining their own infrastructure. Yeah, they, yeah, where's the money come? Where's the budget? What's well, the yeah. same here? These things have been yeah. put in the ground for yeah. in the United States. I, I mean, I got in the business in early nineties and, and the technology we developed, it, it was just, it was just getting started. Um, in some places in the United States that they've been putting in ponds and, uh, wetlands and a few things. Um, but they become legacy projects. The purpose of these things is to collect pollutants. If they're working well, they're going to collect a lot of pollutants and the pollutants just don't go away. Mm. So you have to pull them out. Um, in my opinion, until you pull them out of the water stream, there's still a potential for them being, Course. Uh, discharge yeah. our waterways. So um, what's happening now is municipalities are starting to realize they have to start dealing with this. And so uh, they're looking very hard at asset management programs. And so you start thinking of, of these facilities as an asset and you manage them uh, very much the way you'd manage your water system, the way you'd manage your transportation uh, system. And you have to prioritize the maintenance. You have to provide funding and all this other stuff. 
So a lot of that is going on right now, and some municipalities are enforcing it. And uh, they have inspectors that come onto private property and say, you haven't maintained your system. And if you don't have that maintained within 30 days, we're going to shut you down. Wow. Um, Why not? It's like any other asset. And you mentioned roads and a few other sort of infrastructure types. We all recognize that all these assets need maintenance, but yeah. some, for whatever reason, stormwater management assets seem to just be forgotten about for some reason. I don't know why. It's, it's well, almost first of all, there's joke. no funding to start with. Um, well, I mean, where's I the have- funding coming from in the United States? You, you, you talk about, hey, it's starting to happen, but the money must be coming from somewhere. Is it coming from the individual municipalities? or The municipalities are all getting in, in the process of setting up stormwater utilities. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, depending on where you are in the United States, the level of asset management that's being done, it's just like you pay for a wastewater treatment. And, and so, you have to pay for the maintenance of the pipes. You have to pay for the removal of the giant fatberg that has mm-hmm. you know, plugged everything yeah. up. And you've got pumps and electrical system, all this other stuff. Well, the same with the stormwater. You have to remove the pollutants. You have to dispose of them, which is also an issue. You know, what are these things? What yeah. do you do with them? How are they classified? But um, and then a lot of times you have to reconstruct it to its original specification. You have to reconstruct a one hectare pond that's been choked with sediment and overgrown with vegetation. That's not cheap. Yeah. So they're trying to understand what are the actual costs associated with this maintenance. How do you manage it from an asset management perspective? So these questions are being brought up, and this conference that we put on was actually one of the more successful. Um, specialty conferences that the American Society of Civil Engineers Environmental Water Resource Institute has put on in, in quite a while. So you mentioned California before. Are they going down this path of utilizing stormwater utilities to achieve their... Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, basically you're saying any American jurisdiction with its you know act together, you think they've predominantly just pushed on with a stormwater utility concept? Yeah, it's, it's becoming more and more popular. I mean, it, there are different funding mechanisms yeah. to you know, a lot of smaller municipalities. I originally talked about the MPDS program at Cities 100,000. That was in 1990 or so. About 10 years later, it's now cities of, um, I think, uh, 12,000 people or so. And then donut holes, mm. uh, basically. So if you're a real small municipality in a large urban area, you you have to comply anyway. So the number of uh, municipalities or local governments that are not having to do this is pretty much ubiquitous across the United States. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and uh, can you see Australia and other parts of the world going down a similar process in terms of uh, starting and implementing stormwater utilities for the, the management of I our think assets? so. You have to pay for it somehow. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of people object to it. It's, politically, it's a very charged thing because, so now you're going to tax me for the rain. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, we're not taxing you for the rain, but we're uh, taxing you for all the pollution that's being transported into our waterways that you like to fish in, yeah. you like to swim in, you enjoy being by. I'd like to say that source control gets to the point where nothing's being discharged, and source control is a great thing. I, I heard you talk earlier in a broadcast uh, about, you know, re- reducing single-use yeah. plastics, and and uh, there's a lot of chemicals that come out of those things. And, sure. You know, if we go to start moving toward uh, you know, non-coal-fired electricity and things, you know, there's economic mm. pressures on that, but the aerosols that come off these uh, eventually get in the rain and fall on the ground yeah. and get in our waterways. Yeah. So the pollutants 
non-point source pollution is basically it's coming from a diffuse sources and it's very difficult to control. One of the things that uh, that OSHA protector what we're trying to achieve is to get it up the political agenda to mandate or, or, or ensure that these existing devices are getting cleaned out here in Australia. And look, one thing from, from my point of view, my personal point of view was, well, yeah, it's going to need some sort of tax on the individual. But if you, if you look at the Sydney catchment and we're saying 1% of it's treated, well, that's sort of a historical problem. We really need to be going to the state and federal government that haven't, you know, that they've let this happen. And, and now we're going to tax say, all of Sydney over something historic. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I think yeah. it needs to be a combination of both. I think yeah. if we're going to ask people to, you know, pay a, a stormwater pollution tax, well, I think it should be matched, you know, dollar for dollar by the yeah. state, by by federal. I mean, it's... Uh, look, I, I think you're right. I th- we're, we are all in the same boat. And federally, uh, at a state level and locally, we are heavily dependent on the health of our waterways. Everyone recognises that and we all recognise that urban stormwater uh, runoff is a key pressure, in fact, probably the number one pressure on the health of our waterways and is also the major source of plastic in our ocean, uh, at least on our, in, our, in Australian coastal waters. So... We need to do something collectively about it. It's not just a local government problem. They've got a, a, a lot of things that they need to do and they have very often limited funding available for those activities. And if we are talking about achieving some of the targets that have been achieved, are going to be achieved in places like California, it needs a significant investment. And it can't just come from local government. I think it does need to come from uh, state and federal government within Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of blown, blown me away where we've gone with this, uh, yeah. this episode. Um, there's just so much more I want to ask you. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, we've, we've sort of run out of time, but look, can I, can I, first of all, thank you for coming on and, and uh, sharing your thoughts. But can I also, uh, we've got this new bit of equipment, which allows us to ring people from overseas and have another podcast. So can you, uh, can we get you on for like a part two of, of, of James Denhart? <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, thanks very much, Jim. Thanks for coming on. And uh, as always, thanks, Brad. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.